Hello, fellow detectives, and welcome to another episode of Horse Mysteries. I'm David Dedrick. And I'm Lisa Williamson. And our first episode, A Horse Disappeared. Our second episode, A Man Disappeared. <laughs> and our third episode, dear, is called? It's called The Wild West. The Wild West. That's opposed to the Wild Wild West, so there's no Will Smith, Kevin Klein, or a giant spider in the story, I assume. You are correct. Okay, well, that was a good guess. Do you want to uh, start off with sort of a general talk about this, or do you just want to get right into it? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I was just going to say, I think probably it should have been called Bad Blood, because maybe that's more appropriate. But Bad Blood? Yeah. Okay. You can, uh, you can make your decision which would have been the better. Title. Okay, so Wild West slash Bad Blood. So the setting is... October 28th, 1970. Okay. The time is 8.15 p.m. Oh, it's very specific? Very specific. So wait, so it's... Say the date again? Uh, October 28th, 1970. 1970, okay. All right. So, yeah, picture polyester suits. Yeah, big, big cars. Yeah. Sure. All right, um, and the setting um, is a, a suburb called Palatine, Illinois, which is just a little bit uh, northwest of Chicago. So it's a town or village, I guess, town of about 26,000. Okay. So Chicago. I wanted to talk about Chicago, actually. Okay. Because I always had this different idea of Chicago. Okay, so l let me just... Was your idea of Chicago based on, like, gangsters, like Al Capone? Yeah, it was a little bit about gangsters and... Um, I can remember my mom telling me about stockyards and railways and sure. yeah, things like that. Upton and so, Sinclair's The Jungle. Yeah, you know. and then I think my mom always called it the Windy City. So I just pictured this very bleak place and wind was blowing across it and mm -hmm. it was very industrial. So you forgot that it was the home of the first skyscraper, the I home did. of Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah. It has some of the best art, art museums in America. Yeah, so all of that stuff, I didn't really put it together because, yeah, I continued on with this delusion. Um, <laughs> so I was reading some mystery stories of a detective that they're set in Chicago. And okay. She's a Polish girl. Oh, yeah, V.I. Warszawski. Yes, those ones. And, I just um, made up that, that yeah, uh, pronunciation. Something like that. I yeah, cannot yeah. remember her name. But the, her I think Chicago, played by Kathleen Turner in the movie. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. So her, her Chicago is very down at heels and very... You know uh, what? It's a big city. It is. It, it is. encompasses multitudes. Yeah. But yeah, that was the Chicago I always had mm -hmm. in my mind, and mm -hmm. I didn't picture You forgot anything. about Bob Newhart. Well, I forgot about Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think all those... It's a, it's the suburb of Chicago, but Tilly's yeah, uh, in Chicago. Aren't, yeah. Aren't all those like John Hughes films set there? I believe they're set in an imaginary suburb of chicago mm -hmm. but yeah that's 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 another chicago that i had sort of oak really, park yeah, idea, yeah. connected yeah. and then um i guess the other one was a time traveler's wife which was a book i read and it sounded very mm -hmm. lovely and then we saw the movie and i'm yep. like oh wow okay and then of course when we were going to paris i wanted to find all these artworks that i'd always wanted to see in real sure. life and i was looking up which museum in Paris they would be in, and it was Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. And I'm like, what? I could not believe it. So, yeah. Yes, it's a striving city. It's also called the second city because it's second to New York. Right, yeah. Which made so, them, you know, cause a lot of uh, inferiority complex. Mm -hmm. It yeah. has short city syndrome. Yeah. Is that what they call it? 
Yes, I think so. Okay, so yeah, I think Chicago, the city, plays an important part. I don't know that this could have happened anywhere else. Okay. Well, fortunately, it couldn't have happened anywhere else. Uh, if you thought last week's story was bad, these people, <laughs> whoa. Should have been called the, the Wild Midwest. Yeah, Wild, wild Midwest. <laughs> The date was October 28th, and the following day, October 29th, would have been George Jane Jr.'s 16th birthday. Okay. So, for whatever reason, the family had chosen to meet on the day before, October 28th, to have a family dinner. And following the family dinner, George Jane Jr. went upstairs to his bedroom, and uh, the rest of the people went downstairs to play bridge. So the people that were present were George Jr.'s father, George Jane Sr., who is 47 years old, Marion, who is the mom of George Jr., Linda Wright, who is 22, that was George's sister, and then her husband, Mickey Wright. So as the dad, George Jane Sr., is shuffling cards, the window in front of them exploded. He stood up and... Blood was coming out of his chest, and then he immediately sank to the floor. So George, sorry, what were you going to say? I just said, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so George Jr., who was upstairs, came running downstairs, and his mom tells him, call a doctor. And so shortly thereafter, someone also obviously called the police because... So I guess this was before 911, hey? Yeah, probably would have been. Yeah, so it would have been, yeah, call the doctor, call the police. Yeah, you had to make a bunch of phone calls. Sure, on a rotary phone. Yeah. Took him 15 minutes to call everyone. Yeah, you had to know. I I can remember when we had in our barn all the phone numbers that you had to phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had the, yeah, by our home phone, we had the... Officer Michael McDonald of the Palatine Police Department shows up. He's the first on scene. He goes into the basement He observes uh, George Jane Sr. lying in a pool of blood. He attempts CPR. Then an ambulance arrives with a doctor in it. Different times as well. (laughs) Um, Hitchhiking doctors. Yeah. Uh, So George Jane is removed from the resident on a stretcher and his face is covered. So it's reported that they had a something over his face so okay not good news he's transported to northwest community hospital which is near arlington heights um, and that is where he is pronounced dead on arrival hmm. so back at the house officer mcdonald uh, continues looking around he observes that there is a bullet hole in the window of the basement um, the window was directly above where the group had been playing cards so he seals off the basement he goes outside and he finds foot impressions in the grass outside the window and the footprints are spaced far apart, so indicative of someone who's running. And the footprints head toward the street. Okay. Uh, did they take a plaster impression of the footprints? Uh, did they take a plaster impression? No, but they did find some other things. Okay. So. George Jane Sr. is a millionaire former owner of Tri-Color Riding Stable in Palatine, Illinois. He is a professional horseman, very well known nationally, a successful hunter-jumper trainer and agent, so he buys and sells horses. Mm-hmm. His clientele consists of the Chicago elite, and it was noted including Bob Galvin of Motorola, so very, very wealthy people. Okay. Um, 
Jane is a lifetime member of the AHSA, so it's American Horse Show Association. And he's also an AHSA licensed judge, as is his wife. So the whole family is involved in this horse enterprise. Sure. So the next morning, October 29th, 1970, Timothy Dixon, who is a criminalist with the Illinois State Crime Lab, arrives at the residence to take photographs. All right. So is that like a forensic person? Yes. And there's going to be another story later on, which is also based in Chicago, uh, where we see they have a special um, group of people who are criminalists who just go around and, yeah, they're, they're forensic um, they, they look at a lot of different things like forensic accounting, but also just the forensics at the crime scene. And yeah, hmm. they're special investigators, yeah, basically. Yeah. So yeah, I guess Chicago was big enough that they had their own group of these people. Yeah. So he arrives uh, at the resident to take photographs. And what he finds are fabric impressions and a partial fingerprint in the mud near the window. So, a fingerprint in the mud? No, yeah, I guess so. Oh, a muddy fingerprint, maybe. Uh, no, I think the fingerprint is in the mud, and the fabric impressions are in the mud. But, yeah, you're questioning that. So, yeah, they end up finding later that the um, fingerprints, they cannot get any oh, okay. insufficient evidence yeah, so, yeah. from it. But the fabric impressions did prove to be valuable evidence later on. So, <laughs> uh-huh. So an autopsy is done on Jane, and it shows that he died almost instantly from a bullet that entered his right chest and came to rest in his lower back. And the bullet is later determined to have been fired from a .30-06 rifle. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So his wife, or widow, I guess at this time, Marion, immediately points the finger at one of George's relatives, his uh, estranged brother, half-brother, Silas Jane. Well, Silas has got to be guilty. Yes, he's a bad guy. Bad, bad from the get-go. So there had been a decades-long family feud with the victims so between Silas and George. And local authorities are well aware of the lengthy history of violence towards George and towards others by Silas Jane. Huh. Robert R. Sentner, who is a Palatine chief of police, then goes to Silas Jane questions him and also questions 12 other siblings in the Jane family. Police continue to um, sort of canvas the area and they they find a local resident, Mrs. Patricia McCoy, and she's able to provide information on the make and color of a car that she observed parked around the corner from Jane's house on Tweed Street immediately prior to the shooting. Uh, She described a red Ford with a white hard top that was driven by a white male with short, dark, curly hair. Then the authorities find another witness, a teenager, Stephen Morris, who had been riding his motorbike down the road at about the same time. And he was able to provide police with a partial license plate for a red car he saw that was parked on a different road nearby Banbury Drive. Morris noted the general appearance of the car's driver as a white male with sideburns who is wearing glasses. So his recollection was that the first three digits of the license were 936. So authorities put together Ford, Red Ford, white hardtop, the license plate, and they found a red Ford that had a license plate, 996880. It's a weird license plate. Anyway. Why? um, Well, because we have letters and numbers. I see. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Maybe um, yours is weird. Maybe. Do you ever think about that? 
I did. I did. So they go and they track down the, the owner of this car. Uh, it's someone who works in the stockyards. His name's Melvin Adams. By the first week of November, the police have obtained photographs of Adams' car as it sits in the lot of his workplace. Then a week later, agents of the Illinois Bureau of Investigation pull Adams over when he's driving. Adams is in the company of his girlfriend, Pat Farmer. Uh, the couple is not detained, but later that same day, IBI agents pull the couple over again and search Farmer's purse where they find $3,800 in cash, which back then would have been a fair chunk of change. Yeah. So the money is confiscated by the authorities, and the couple are questioned but later released. Later, they were able to do tests on the money, and Silas Jane's fingerprints are found on 17 of the bills. Okay. Silas Jane, who is he? Yeah. He's a bad guy. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> so we'll go way, way, way back in time. Um, so Silas Jane was born July 3rd, 1907 in Cuba Township, Lake County, Illinois. Okay. So he was the oldest of three sons in a family of 11 children who were hmm. born to Arthur and Catherine Jane. So Silas's father, Arthur, was a farmer, a driver, and also a part-time bootlegger. Okay. So, we know where the income came from. Yes. Yeah. So Silas's mother, Catherine, ultimately had 14 children. Uh, her son, George, who we met at the beginning of the story, was yeah. born in 1922 while Catherine was still married to Arthur. However, by that time, she had already taken up with another man named George William Spunner, who is a lawyer. Okay. And um, he was married as well. Hmm. So Catherine's first husband, Arthur, who is the father of most of her children, died in 1927. And then... Her boyfriend, George, provided for her and the younger offspring. It wasn't until 1946 that George's wife died. And so then a year later, he and Catherine married in 1947. So because he had a good job, he had influence, the younger children were raised in much better circumstances than the older ones. And this created feelings of jealousy. So also around the time that George was born... Within a year of George being born, Silas, who was 17 at the time, was convicted of rape and oh. put into uh, the state reformatory for a year. So this criminal act later down the road means that he doesn't end up going and doing service in World War II. Okay. So that's kind of significant because after he gets out of the reformatory in the 1930s, which of course was at the height of the Depression, mm -hmm. Silas and his two other brothers, uh, DeForest and Frank, they start up their own business. And what they were doing is they're rounding up the Mustang horses off the American plains and shipping them to the stockyards in Woodstock. Illinois, where they would go on to be used for horse meat. So that was just, yeah, his business, rounding up horses. Hmm. So he made what a business. Pardon? I said, what a business. Yes, yeah. So he made up enough, or made enough money on that venture that he was able to buy a ranch near Woodstock, which is 40 miles north of Chicago. So because he was ineligible for the draft due to his prior conviction, he and his brother Frank continued during the war years with the, with the, uh, horse selling business. Mm -hmm. um, DeForest had committed suicide earlier. Then he got into choosing some of the horses to kind of break and sell to people as riding horses, because at that time, Chicago had a scene 
an equestrian scene that was starting to kind of blossom. And basically, yeah, the people that had money and had leisure time were able to start riding. I've seen some of the pictures of some of the stables and big trails and everything. So, yeah, it was very, very elaborate, very, very beautiful. So by the time he was doing this, he was operating out of a place called Green Tree Stables in the village of Norwich, which is a suburb of Chicago. And in the city, he was also running his business out of a place called Elstone Riding Academy. In the city? Yeah. So he had two, <laughs> yeah, he had two hubs that he was working out of. It's weird to imagine stables being in the city. But, mm-hmm. but I mean, even here in Vancouver, of course, mm-hmm. we've got Southlands. So, and in London, there's there's places you can ride and mm-hmm. New York. But yeah, it is a, a strange thing. When I was in Hong Kong, I mean, they have one place where the horses are on the top floor of this giant building, yeah, right? And yeah. they take the freight elevators up and all the riding happens outside on the top floor. It's it's hard to imagine for us who live, you know, with access to countryside, but yeah, it is it is a thing for sure. Okay, so he ended up being so successful with uh, this new venture that he starts focusing on selling horses to businessmen for their daughters as sh- prospective show horses. So okay. that's what he gets into. He starts up another uh, stables called Idle Hour Stables, which is in Parkridge, Illinois. And by this time, he owns multiple other stables in the area, including one called Our Day Farm in Elgin, Illinois. So typically, he would sell the horses to prosperous clients uh, that he had acquired for next to nothing. And again, many of them were just wild horses. Or at that time, the agricultural industry was changing. Yeah, And so... Horses were coming off of farms. They were being replaced by tractors. And again, many of those horses were being shipped for meat. So he was taking the ones that seemed like likely prospects and turning them into riding horses or potential show horses. Mm-hmm. Some of them are also washed up thoroughbred racehorses as well. With drinking problems. Drinking problems, yeah. So then he would represent these horses as well-trained, top-quality horses with great potential to become champions and often it was found out that this was not true. Because he had all these big stables, more than one, he had multiple employees as well. And, I mean, we see it around here a bit as well. You know, in those days, I guess, you know, the dad would work, the mom often would stay at home in that sort of a household. The kids would go out and play. And if they were girls that were interested in horses, they would go to the stables and be there all day Mm -hmm. and just hang around and... Um, yeah, just watch their friends ride, ride with their friends, yeah, just hang around and have fun. But Jane took advantage of that, Silas Jane took advantage of that, because if the girls' dads came to complain that he had sold them a bum horse, what he would do is he would tell the men that their daughters were promiscuous, they had bad reputation with the stable hands, he was going to let everyone know about this, and so in order to avoid a scandal, the men would typically drop their complaints. Hmm. So, yeah, he was very manipulative. Other words that were used to describe him, they he was called a hard bargaining bully. He <laughs> was described as a heavy drinker. He was described as a manipulative, smooth-talking charmer, uh, narcissistic sociopath. He was described as overbearing, intimidating, and viciously competitive. On the plus side, he did have a very discerning eye for horses, so... <laughs> 
Of course, that doesn't. Yeah. So you're going to forgive him everything else no, that he has no, at hands and eye for horses. No, he is a pretty terrible guy. Um, <laughs> Seems like he was also terrible to horses. Yes, he was. He was. Um, he was. I think he was just terrible, period. So, yeah, there is a, a story in the family um, that dated back to when he was young, a little boy, and he had been bitten by a goose in their yard. Okay. And, um, yeah, not only was did he have a vicious temper... Um, and not only was he a violent person, he also had to seek revenge. And so he not only went and killed the goose, he killed the entire flock that oh. they had. So, yeah, he was just like out of control, completely out of control. Hmm. He was also uh, described as a ruthless businessman. Um, and, yeah, as you said, he was, he was heartless with all the horses he dealt with, took advantage of his clients. Um, and then you think, why how could a person run a business like this? Like, why do people keep going to him? Um, yeah, oddly enough, he was very friendly with the police. He had a lot of connections with the police. Yeah, on the other end of the spectrum, he hung around with a lot of prominent Chicago gangsters, too. Okay. So his friends were the police and his friends were these gangsters. Yeah. Um, he boasted of having been in, was it Joliet Prison? Is that how you say it? Sure. Yeah, but... He never served time there. It was okay. just a juvenile um, reform school that he had to go to. But, yeah, he he kind of painted a picture of himself as being, you know, he's someone that hung around with. And many of these policemen were kind of crooked guys, too. Yeah, of course. Um, so corrupt policemen, Chicago gangsters, uh, including a one guy called Mad Sam DiStefano. Uh, he would come to the farm with all his buddies. They would play cowboys, ride around on the horses, shoot guns in the air with, like, actual bullets. Um, yeah, so that's the kind of place he was running. Those were well-behaved horses. Yeah, they, they had to have been. Otherwise, he would have done away with them. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, just going back to his character, though, like, after his brother dies, of course, the finger's kind of being pointed at him, but, yeah, he's like, I didn't have anything to do with it. And when the obituary gets written up, his name is left off because, of course, his wife, Marion, is very upset. This is George's wife. Does not put Silas's name in the obituary. And so Silas takes that very much um, as a slur against him and yeah. refuses to come to the funeral. So, yeah, well, even... She didn't want him to come to the funeral no, anyway. No, I'm sure she didn't. <laughs> So in the late 1940s, George had started his own show horse barn. He had the backing of his fairly well-off dad, who was a lawyer. And very quickly, he kind of moved up the rank um, and got his trainer's license, and, or not trainer's license, but judge's license, etc. Um, so initially, Silas was helping George at the barn, but... In a short time, George severed ties with Silas. He was just too uncouth for this sort of business that George was wanting to run. Okay. Which, of course, did not sit well with Silas. Um, so, 1952, Silas was still angry at George's betrayal. While George and his family were away vacationing in Florida, his house gets burned down. Hmm. So, the immediate thought is that Silas did it, but it was investigated, but no charges were ever laid. Okay. Yes. So then Silas starts his own show stable because he sees how well his younger brother George is doing. Yeah. But when they go out to horse shows, George's horses and riders 
almost always beat those of Silas. Hmm. This does not sit well with Silas either, because he's extremely competitive as well. Because George is doing so well as a trainer, many of Silas's clients leave him and move over to George. Again, this does not go down very well. (laughs) So in 1961, there's a young professional rider. She was 18 at the time. Her name was um, Cheryl Rude or Sherry. Silas had actually fired her earlier so she had been a rider for silas okay he fires her but george knows she's a good rider immediately hires her hmm. and at a, the next horse show she goes on to win the big gambler's choice class at the oakbrook horse show what's the gambler's class dear oh gambler's choice it's not my favorite class do you remember when he was riding in the peony that one sure. time? I, I know what it is yeah. i just okay. will explain so, this for okay our so gambler's choice is a class where Rather than your typical horse show where you have a set pattern uh, or course of jumps that you have to follow, with Gambler's Choice, you have jumps that are worth particular points. Yeah, there's particular values set for each jump. Yeah, so some might be 10, some might be 50, some might be 100. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the 10s are very low jumps, the 100s are higher jumps. You have a set number or set amount of time like usually 60 seconds to go out and take whatever track or course you want you can only go over each jump once in each direction so there there is strategy to it Mm -hmm. and then at the end of your round um, there will be one extremely high jump in the middle which will be worth something like 500 points and you can either say i'm retiring here i'm happy with my score or you can try the gambler, which is the one in the middle. <laughs> and I think if you knock it down, then you lose 500 points. I think that's how it works. Anyway, rules vary from place to place. Yeah, it's to me, it's just a, like a scramble, mad scramble. <laughs> there's there's nothing good about that class, but it's very exciting to watch. and. Sure. It does appeal to a certain kind of rider. It just does not appeal to me. Anyway, they'd gone into this, and it was, I would guess, a feature class. Like, everyone would have come to to watch this class, and they probably would have had a a big money prize for it. And so, Sherry, riding George's horse, goes on to win the Gambler's Choice, and beats Silas's rider. Silas is so upset, he lodges a protest with the show committee. Yeah. And usually when you do that, you have to put some money down as well. Okay. Obviously, uh, you know, people will often be unhappy if you don't win a class. So I think, you know, they've made it so that, yeah, if, if you want to... It's a to, disincentive for yeah, this nuisance uh, complaints. That's right. Yeah. So basically, yeah, they, he had to put some money down, but the show committee supported George's horse and rider, and that made Silas even more mad. So... Yeah, nothing's going his way. Yeah. Uh, his little brother's getting the best of him all the time. Uh, he's a very competitive, unhappy guy. So later, that same year, 1961, uh, at a different horse show, Silas's horse loses to George's horse in the show ring again. And, and these are situations where they've got a different person riding him. Like Silas is not riding a horse and George is not riding yeah, a horse. Yeah. But they've, they've paid riders to yeah. ride for them. But yeah, George's horses win, beat Silas. Yeah. And so in front of a lot of witnesses, George comes up or Silas comes up to George and tells him he's going to kill him. Hmm. So yeah, a few months later, <laughs> um, he does it again at the Lake Forest Horse Show. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter... George is sitting in his office at his farm one day, and he just gets up and walks out of the office just in time, 
bullets start flying through the office. Yeah, uh-huh. someone shoots up his office, but he had just stepped out, which saved his life. It was investigated. Again, no charges were laid. No arrests were made. Funny how the friends, the police friends of <laughs> Silas were unable to find anything. Yes, I know. Okay, so then two years later, in 1963 at the Northwestern Horse Show, the same scenario played out again. Another horse show loss. Silas loses to George. George uh, gets another death threat from Silas. 1964 happens again at the, both the Lake Forest Horse Show and the International Amphitheater. Um, in 1965, happens again at the Kansas City Show and the Lake Forest Horse Show. So these are all big horse shows. Obviously, they're not just local things. They're going yeah. to different states. He's making these threats in front of witnesses, but he doesn't care. It's hard to imagine. I'm just thinking, like, when did... Were there competitive horse shows, say, in the 19th century? Or is this something that no, sprung yeah. up in the sort of leisure age of the, the yes. post, post-farming... Yeah. So- yeah, basically, uh, the late 1800s, like around 1875 or something like that, yeah. they had a few horse shows, but the original horse shows would have been called um, like the military and were eventing. Um, and most of the people who were competing back then would have been military riders. The Olympics had equestrian competitions in the 1900 yeah. Olympics. Yeah. And then I think every year since then, or almost every year since then, I think they, they skipped one year. Up until the 1940s, it was primarily riders from the military who can compete even at the Olympic level. At the early like 1900, 1904, 1908 Olympics, there were different equestrian competitions at the Olympics than we have now. Well, um, most famously, the horse synchronized swimming. <laughs> no, there were some weird ones, though. I can't remember exactly what they are, but there were some odd ones. And there were some that, that had women competitors. Yeah, it wasn't until after the 19, um, well, the Olympics after World War II, which was held in London, that civilians could compete. Mm. Um, and so when that happened, like we went from the age of the, if you know who Jimmy Woodford is, he's... Um, uh, great writer who was on the U.S. Um, eventing team, and he writes a lot for some of the big news or magazines. But he, he classifies it, the horse show world now, as the, the age of the military, the age of the civilian, and now we're in the age of the professional. Mm-hmm. So kind of as we saw with basketball in Olympics as well, like yeah. there was a time that you could not take money if you were going to compete in the Olympics. And then all of a sudden pro basketball players were competing in the Olympics or pro hockey players were competing in the Olympics. And previously that was not allowed to happen. Like yeah. my coach, when I was young, he charged us $2 for riding lessons because he had some Olympic aspirations, but he was not allowed to make, you know, any money from his, you know, his sport. Yeah. But then how are you supposed to support yourself? Yeah. So it comes down to that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, from after World War II in North America in particular, yeah, there was this huge explosion of horse shows, especially with the people of, you know, upper class if we want to say that sure yeah. upper the middle money, middle and the money yeah, yeah the money middle, class. class yeah 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 it is well it's just like that perfect situation of like you know the land outside around the city is cheap enough that people could afford the land and also just have places for horses and mm-hmm. if that was your aspirations or if your kids aspire to that then you you know it was it was affordable uh it was an affordable uh pastime mm-hmm. yeah 
And this is like that perfect time for that. You know, we're past that now because the land is so expensive that mm-hmm. you can't have, you can't afford right. that. You yeah. know, you have to board or whatever your horse mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. In the UK, it was a, a similar situation, but um, I think it happened a little earlier than World War II. And that was a lot to do with the, um, the influence of India. Interestingly mm. enough, because you know a lot of people went to India with Britain, and some of the things that they brought back were polo. Yeah. So polo is a game that came from, and then gym canas, which are basically like PPG games, so relay races on ponies. So there was a lot yeah. of fun and speed, and you know turning fast. And the British already had hunting, mm. which was their kind of primary sport. Yeah. And so that's where pony club grew out of, and so pony club trying to. Um, get kids interested and keep them interested. You know, you're going to have little gymkhanas and you're going to have little horse shows. And so that grew up out of that sort of thing as well. So they have something called riding clubs there, which are sort of what you would go to after you graduated out of pony club and they hold horse shows. Mm-hmm. And that's still a model that they have there. Yeah, certainly through the 20th century, uh, the horse shows grew, but especially after World War II in North America, they, they got really big. It became a huge thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Like This is this is like news, newspaper-worthy sized events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, really see now. Yeah, I remember that Snowman movie. I mean, it was sort of the society thing to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, it's, yeah, it's you could get in the newspaper. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when I was little, like you could get your name in the newspaper if you won a ribbon at the PNE or something. So, <laughs> but yeah, for a local horse show, no way they were not going to put any horse stuff in the newspaper because we're an agricultural town, cows only. So yeah, lots of pictures of cows in our local newspaper, but no horses. Well, anyways, as we as we carry on, we're in the mid 1960s now. Silas was continually threatening George, often in front of witnesses, and often these threats were followed by acts of violence. So, in one, someone tried to run George off the road with his car. He had sticks of dynamite left at his back door. Uh, snipers shot at his stable hands, so his employees. His vehicles were often the focus of attacks. He had sugar poured in his gas tank. His tires were slashed. Again, all of these incidents were investigated, but no arrests were ever made. They weren't done by anyone. <laughs> Those little ghosts from Family Circus were running around. That's right. Not me. Not me, not me. Um, and yeah, sadly, sometimes the horses suffered as well. So in <coughs> 1964, uh, George's top show horse, a mare called Shotzi, was, who was supposed to have been worth $25,000, which would have been, yeah, quite a lot of money sure. back then, was injected with turpentine and died. Um, and then a second horse was also poisoned. Once more, no one was ever charged with these crimes. Wow. Yeah. It's crazy. Yes. Then on June 14, 1965, um, Sherry Rude, who was the young lady who had been fired by Silas and hired by George, she, she became the innocent victim of this feud because one day she stopped by the barn and George just asked her to go hook up the horse trailer for him. Mm-hmm. He had to run an errand, go pick up a horse. And back then, what people would often do, you wouldn't have a truck and a trailer, you'd often have a car and a trailer. So he had one of those great big Cadillacs. Yeah. And so she went to the Cadillac, a 1965 Cadillac, and started it up. As soon as she started it up, it exploded and she was killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
So then, a week later, on June 20th, 1965, um, Silas tries to contract two men, 28-year-old California horse trainer Steve Grodd and Ed Morin, to come up from Florida to kill George. However, the men decided to double-cross Silas and alerted George to the plot. So George convinced them to report Silas to the police. Silas was then, or George rather, was then put into protective custody by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. The police had George's wife, Marion, announce that George had disappeared. Hmm. So then undercover sheriff's deputy posed as a hitman and recorded Silas as he contracted with the hitman, in quotation marks, for George's murder. Kind of like the third murderer in Macbeth, I guess. So there were two murders, and then all of a sudden there's three murders. Um, so the undercover officer was given it's a not 1,000... that third murder. We, yeah. Everyone thought it was Macbeth, but yeah. no, it turns out it's... Uh... Police, police informant. That's right. Um, so the undercover officer was given a $1,000 down payment for the crime. And then Silas agreed that he would be paid an additional 15000 on completion of the job. Hmm. Silas used a code phrase, it's time to buy a horse. <laughs> yeah. But in the course of the conversation, Silas said enough that the police were able to then arrest him for conspiracy to murder, to, or to commit murder. Yeah. And then he was indicted by a Cook County grand jury for solicitation of a crime. So it was later learned that Silas had also unsuccessfully tried to contract a hit on both Grodd and Morin for their double cross of him. So <laughs> oddly... Uh, but he just ready to have help wanted ads in the paper? Is that what he was doing? Yeah, I don't know how he did it. Um, that Grodd guy, he's someone... Do you remember that um, Diane and Bob who I was friends with on Facebook? Yep. And they had a romance? That was her first husband. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. And he died just a few years ago. And I remember in the thing, she says, oh, he has died. And he made some mistakes in his life. But he was good at heart, blah, blah. Huh. He wasn't a perfect person. He made some sure. serious mistakes. He contracted to be a serial... Or no, he's contracted <laughs> to be a hitman. Yeah. Other than that, sweet, sweet guy. <laughs> so... A yeah. heart of gold. Yeah. So I was reading this. I'm like, God, what? Okay. I know that guy. Okay. So then... Wow. A year later, oh, this is, uh, there's so much this guy does who's horrible. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should even skip this. No, no. no. Okay. Let's July right 2nd, 1966. Okay. Three young women. Ann Miller, 21, a professional exercise rider at Oak Brook Polo Club. Patricia Blau, 19, and Renee Brule, 19, who both boarded their horses and rode at George's Tricolor Farm, yeah. disappeared while on an outing to Indiana Dunes State Park. So the crowded beach had 60,000 people on it that day. Hmm. Um, and a young family had set up next to the girl, and they were keeping an eye on, you know, they had their blankets and everything there. Um, there were reliable eyewitness reports and video footage taken of the young women at various times. Videotape. Yeah, you know, like home video. They did have those back then. Seriously, they did. 66? Yeah. All right. I mean, I know, I guess the Ringo has a video camera and get back. He's showing it off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like when my mom and dad. I didn't realize they had ones that were, you didn't have to plug in to, to run. Yeah, I don't know how they work, but I know when my mom and dad went to the UK... In 1962, I guess my dad had some kind of a video. My cousin Anne keeps talking about him walking around videoing everything. Hmm. Yeah. Odd, but yeah. They did have those things back then. Not commonly, but 
my grandpa had a car phone as well. So that was, that's not a common thing. But yeah, I definitely remember. Yeah, your grandpa was Batman. So. <laughs> okay. So anyway, the trio were seen getting into a blue and white boat that had pulled up to the shore. Um, there was a young man with dark hair. And then two hours later, they were observed getting a, on a larger boat with the same man. And there were two other males on the boat. The women had left all their belongings behind, including their purses, their money, and their car keys. So that was all on their blanket. So it was kind of felt that with that action and what they had said to the family beside them that they would be right back. They're just going to go on a spin in a boat with these guys and they would be right back. Mm -hmm. So at the time of the disappearance, there was lots of different theories floated, like the girls left of their own free will. So there had been a note found in Brule's purse expressing her dissatisfaction with her marriage she was the only one that was married it was thought maybe they died of misadventure like drowning however all were very strong swimmers it was felt that they could have gone into a sinkhole <laughs> i guess there were sinkholes around there mm-hmm. or perhaps they had fallen victim to something more nefarious like a sil- serial killer there is a theory about uh, botched abortion cover-ups it was believed that Miller was three months pregnant at the time, and it was also rumored that Brule might also have been pregnant. So, the previous year, these young women had been at Tricolor Stables on the day of the bombing. Okay. Okay. And they may have witnessed the bomb being planted. So, Ann Miller had left behind paperwork indicating she was having trouble with horse syndicate people. And then earlier in March, Patricia Blau had had her face bruised, which was thought to be the result of a toxic relationship she had with someone at the barn. So years later, it was learned that on July 4th, 1966, a person who is later to determine to be an associate of Silas James, Edwin Neufeld, who is at that time employed as chief of detectives in Markham, Illinois, a nearby Chicago suburb, it was well known for its corrupt police force, had filed an insurance (laughs) claim for a boat. It was similar to the ones the girls had last been seen on. Uh, Neffield claimed the boat had burned up. Wreckage of a similar-looking boat was discovered nearby on July 6, 1966. Wow. Bad people. <laughs> the women's bodies were never found. Silas later boasted to an undercover Nevada sheriff that the bodies were buried under his house. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so at the 1966 trial... What was his plan here? He was just going to like slowly murder all the clients? Yeah. Bad business plan. Not the way to do business. Yeah. I know, this is like depressing. It's a bad bad business plan, but it's also a bad murder plan. It is, yeah. It's kind of after a while. After after, uh, what what are we up to right now? How many many deaths? I mean, and there's stuff I skipped, believe it or not. He burned barns. he, He did lots of things to... Uh, not people related to George, yeah. but he just kept getting away with it all the time. I think he just developed this idea that he was invincible. Of course, he had connections. He had I connections. Think the connections and he's, protected him. It's probably that, and also it's uh, that that thing that people talk about with with Donald Trump nowadays, which is that most laws are laws of civility, and if you aren't civilized and just ignore them, there's nothing people can do because. It's outside of the boundaries of yeah. you know, what we have established rules for. Yeah. yeah. So we can't, you know, like you're like, well, you shouldn't do that. Why, why not? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. You shouldn't, shouldn't do that. It's yeah. not good. Why? Yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's human nature. Because I remember, you know, at school, I, when I was running the student council, 
And it would come to that, obviously no, not murders, but um, <laughs> yeah, you would kind of think when it was when people were running for student council president yeah. that you're going to have a fair fight, you know, and it's pretty kind of simple guidelines, like yeah. don't slag other people, don't yeah. be unkind, put up your posters, but you know, it would get that people would put posters, their own posters on top of other people's posters or would make posters putting down the other candidates. Yeah. And so we kept having to make rules. And then it got to the point like we would be questioned, what, well, how big can these posters be? Because, you know, we you can't have a big poster. Well, how big? Exactly how big? To what, you know, what quarter of an inch size? And so we were having to create, the, we ended up with this two-page long document about all the rules for making a poster for a student <laughs> council thing. And you're like, just make a poster that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> like sell yourself and don't yeah don't interfere with someone else but yeah that's just human nature sadly it's yeah. ridiculous yeah but, yeah i think that's what this guy had he just decided he was invincible he didn't have to follow yeah he's outside say. the bounds of s yeah. social social mores yeah. and, and that's kind of why i called it the wild west because i think he kind of epitomized that rootin tootin you know, like shoot him lawless, up. Lawless, yeah, 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 absolutely lawless. So yeah, and there's no, there's no Wyatt Earp to stop him. Yeah, because Wyatt um, Earp's taking money from him, yeah. putting in his pocket. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we will carry on. So he has now finally been um, picked up for something. So 1966 trial. Um, so, so what has been picked up for? Uh, this is the hit on George. Okay. Yeah. So or the hit that didn't go through. Okay. So uh, he was acquitted. Because what happens is the state's main witness, Steve Grodd, um, who had been present when the undercover deputy accepted the money for the hit from yeah. Silas, yeah. claimed sudden amnesia, famously, <laughs> famously stating, I can't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I'm sick. Huh. Yeah. He had a heart of Grodd. Yeah. So after Silas's acquittal, George's office at Tricolor Stables was burglarized. Uh, Silas told one of George's employees, your boss will be out of business soon because I gave the IRS boys all the dope on him. George was indicted for income tax fraud a short time later. <laughs> He's a dirty fighter. Okay, so around the same time, Silas also got George in trouble with his prestigious client, wealthy businessman Patrick Butler. So Butler was a well-known horseman and sponsor who later went on to own the horse Snoopy, who Neil Shapiro, who was a beautiful rider, won a silver and a bronze medal at the 1972 Olympics with. Um, and where were the 1972 Olympics? Held? Munich. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, basically George had convinced this Patrick Butler to buy a Canadian horse who, according to George, showed a lot of promise. George told Butler the horse cost 18000 so approximately equivalent to 150000 today. Wow. He told Butler he had to pay in cash because the horse's Canadian owner was experiencing tax problems. Yeah. Uh, Silas he also... got one of those phone calls from the CRA. Yeah, that's saying right. Saying there was a warrant out for his arrest yeah. and he should go to the bank and buy gift cards that's to right. pay someone off. So uh, Silas let Butler know that he was being swindled by George. Butler then went to the horse's original owner and learned that he had only been asking 8000 for the horse. <laughs> uh, he also found out that the story about the owner having tax issues was untrue. Uh, there had never been a request for cash payment. Um, and the original owner also admitted that the horse had been nerved, which had not been disclosed to him. So, What, is, what does that mean? Nerved. So it's a practice that... In the race, uh, racetracks? No, this is for um, 
show horses. Oh, show horses. Okay. Um, what they will do if a horse is lame, yeah, and you can't fix it, yeah. Uh, what would be done in the past? I don't know that. I've only ever seen one horse that's been nerved. Yeah. Um, average life expectancy after a horse is nerved is six months. Oh. Uh, what they do is they basically sever all the nerves to the lower leg so the horse can't feel the pain in his foot. And oh. so then it will travel sound and not appear lame. The oh problem is it has no feeling in yeah. its foot. And it's not doing anything therapeutically either. No. So, yeah, the original injury is continuing to break down at a much faster rate. Mm -hmm. um, if the horse steps on a nail or anything oh. like that, it can't feel it. Um, they can break a bone in their foot, anything yeah, like that, cannot feel it. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you nerve a horse, it's not going to be around for too long. It's very inhumane, but that had happened to this horse and it had been sold on. I think that's unethical as well, doing that. Mm -hmm. But George had been aware of it, not told this guy, collected a lot of money for the horse. And so that rich owner was not very happy. Mm -hmm. And that was Silas was the one that let the cat out of the bag on that. <laughs> so... Uh, this is obviously building to a head. It's not pleasant for anyone at this point. And then in 1967, family and friends decided to try and set up a meeting for the two brothers so that they could air their differences and hopefully come to sort of uh, some resolve of this dispute. So Silas self-righteously proclaimed that his primary problem with George was in George's habit of doping horses prior to selling them uh, because he would disgrace the family name. Of course... Silas did that all the time as well. Um, the meeting did not help to resolve anything. Two years later, dynamite, dynamite was thrown into George's house. Suspecting his brother, George hired a bodyguard, a guy called Frank Michelle Sr., who is a former police chief. Uh, Michelle recommended that a tracker be placed on Silas's car, but in the process of the tracker being installed by Frank Michelle's son, uh, who was a private detective, the son was discovered by Silas, and Silas shot and killed him. Oh, man. Yeah. So Silas claimed he had been watching TV when he heard a noise, and he just shot through the door toward the noise without even opening the door up. Huh. But he shot him with not just one, but two guns. So he had all these guns sitting around. The guy actually wasn't killed. He tried to crawl away. He crawled a fair distance, and then Silas tracked him down, found him severely injured on the ground, continually continuing to drag himself away and then jane shot him with a machine gun Jeez. yeah that guy uh, he was able to successfully claim self-defense although he did go to court for that yeah he got off because it was self-defense yeah actually no he didn't go to court he was he was uh, released without being charged October 1970 and May 1971, the IBI kept George's wife Marion well informed of the status of the investigation. So the IBI put Marion in touch with Edward Neffeld, the chief of detectives of the corrupt Markham Police Force. So that was the guy involved in the 1967 disappearance of the three young women. Yeah. Uh, Neffeld was also a fixture in the horse business and a known associate of Silas Jane, but he refused to provide Marion with any useful information. On May 17, 1971, Marion and an agent, Ham, of the IBA met with Patricia Farmer, who was the girlfriend of the guy who worked at the stockyard who had the car that matched the license plate of the car that was seen outside the house. Yeah. And 
she had recently married that guy. So now Farmer and Adams are married. Yeah. Ham excuses himself and let the two women speak privately in an attempt to allow Marion to get Farmer to disclose information about the murder. Yeah. So unbeknownst to the IBI, Marion had brought 25 grand in cash with her. She showed it to Farmer using the money as incentive for giving information on the crime. Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, Farmer then arranges for her husband to come in to talk to Marion 15 minutes later. So he then agrees to talk to the authorities later that same day and returns that evening with his lawyer. Uh, together they talk with Marion Ham and other IBI investigators. The next day, which is May 18th, there's a meeting of this at the state attorney's office. So Melvin Adams was offered immunity for the murder of George Jane Sr., as part of the deal, he had to produce both weapons, the rifle, and the enforcer he had received from Silas and hand them over to the police. That's a gun. Yeah. That night, Adams called Marion, and the two met privately at his apartment, and he revealed the details of George's murder to her. So he told of his initial meeting with Silas, who basically had run through many different scenarios, which included machine gunning George as he drove down the highway or kidnapping George and delivering him alive to Silas's stable. Uh, but eventually Silas decided he wanted George killed in his own home, along with any family members who were witness to the crime. Silas gave Adams a gun, which is a 30 caliber enforcer that had its serial number filed off. And the authorities were later able to raise the number and trace the gun back to Silas. Huh? So on the night of the crime, Adams and his accomplice, Barnes, were driving around looking for George when they found him at home. Uh, Adams waited in the car while Barnes snuck up to the house and shot George through the window. So the next day, May 19th, Adam phoned his accomplice, Julius Barnes, who is a 37-year-old stock worker, from the IBI headquarters. So the call was recorded. Adams and Barnes discussed the guns used in the commission of the crime and Silas's involvement. The two agreed to meet in a parking lot. Adams was wearing a wire during the meeting and was also being photographed by nearby IBI agents. So Barnes implicated himself in the shooting of George Jane, discussed the corduroy pants he was wearing during the commission of the crime, so okay. those were the fabric impressions, yeah. and disclosed that the same pants were in his locker at work. Uh, Barnes also agreed to perform another hit for Silas. So the pair met for a second time that day at 11.45 p.m. So Barnes could return the guns used in the killing to Adams. IBI agents were able to take photographs of the exchange, but the wire Adams was wearing failed, so no voice recordings were secured. Huh. Barnes was arrested at his home by IBI agents at 8 a.m. on May 22, 1971, and charged with murder. He was taken to IBI headquarters in Chicago, where he met with Assistant State's Attorney Matthew Walsh. Walsh questioned Barnes, who initially denied any involvement in the crime, but did admit to having been in possession of the guns. Later, Barnes' story changed, and he then asked to see Adams. When Adams was brought into the room, Adams informed Barnes that the authorities knew everything. Barnes then confessed at approximately 12.30 p.m. He had been advised of his rights, but did not ask to see a lawyer. Then Neffield, who was the police detective, yeah, the, the corrupt, corrupt one, yeah. was brought in for questioning. He stated that Silas had first offered him the hit, but Neffield then passed the job on to Adams via Silas's employee, Ken Hansen, um, who was an associate of someone called Joe LaPlaca, a 50-year-old carpet layer, convicted counterfeiter and occasional polo player, who in turn offered Adams $10,000 to kill George. So 
It's like this whole series <laughs> of bad guys passing the buck. <laughs> Adams had told the authorities of going to a farm owned by Silas in Elgin, Illinois, to practice shooting. Bullets were found in tree trunks that confirmed this. Adams also described traveling to horse shows with the placa to stalk George, whom he had never seen. The pair followed George to various horse shows in San Antonio and New Orleans, looking for an opportunity to kill him, but the timing was never right. Silas felt this was taking too long, he was getting impatient, and so he upped the fee first to $20,000 and then later in July approved for a second man being added to the job and offered $30,000 for the completion of the job. So Julius Barnes was that person and he was the one who suggested using a high-powered rifle instead of the enforcer. Uh, Adam's girlfriend, Pat Farmer, acquired the rifle from a friend. So once authorities had their evidence, they brought Silas in again. Silas was asked to, but refused to take a lie detector test. He claimed he had no reason to harm his brother, uh, as he claimed that he and George had made up years before. <laughs> okay. At that uh, famous meeting where they both agreed they'd like to dope horses. That's right. <laughs> their, one, their one meeting. Yeah. Their one point on the Venn diagram of dis- disagreements. <laughs> So at trial, uh, Silas was represented by F. Lee Bailey. Oh. Yeah, who had also represented the Boston Strangler and Dr. Sam Shepard. So <laughs> Bailey attempted to dis- discredit George Jane Sr.'s reputation by variously describing him as an adulterer, a horse doper, and a person who caused a lengthy family feud. <laughs> what a bad guy. Okay. Although the shooter Barnes had given a full confession to authorities earlier, on the stand he denied any involvement in the crime. He claimed to have been f- that he falsely admitted to having murdered George. On the stand, La Placa claimed to have only met Neffold about a job painting a horse trailer. He said while he knew Adams and had traveled extensively with him to various horse shows, it was because they had a job guarding horses for Sally Sexton, who was making enemies for herself by lobbying for drug testing rules to be introduced for horses at shows. I read about that. That is true. Um, and she was successful. We now have drug testing rules at, mm-hmm. at shows. So La Placa claimed to have helped Adams buy a new car and admitted paying Adams $100 in $50 bills he had received from Silas Jane. He also said he had loaned money to Adams on occasion. So on the stand, Silas claimed he had traded his enforcer, which he had earlier bought at Bell's Gun and Sports Shop with Neffield in exchange for a 38 Special. He also admitted to owning two .30-06 rifles and ammunition for all of his weapons. Barnes had been charged as co-conspirator, but was acquitted of that charge. He was found guilty of murder. Silas surprisingly beat the murder rap. What? <laughs> usual. Yeah. But he was convicted in 1973 of conspiracy to murder his brother, George Jane. He was sentenced to six to, 12 year, or six to 20 years in prison. He was released in 1979 from the Vienna Correctional Center in southern Illinois, and he had served just under seven years. So the trigger man, Julius Barnes, was given 25 to 35 years for homicide, and La Placa got six to 20 years for conspiring to commit murder. <laughs> Neffield pleaded guilty of conspiring to commit murder and was sentenced to three to 10 years. Mm. So they all got put in jail. So that was good. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, sordid tale. In 
1980, Silas Jane was back in court, because again, he was released in 1979, <laughs> this time for allegedly having a former cellmate start a fire at a stable where some people he had a grudge with kept their horse. 33 horses died. Oh, my God. Jane was acquitted. <sighs> I know. Silas Jane died of leukemia in 1987. He was 80 years old. He Not was a moment too soon. Yeah. So he's linked to many other crimes including the 1955 disappearance and murder of three young boys, um, which was later proved to have been committed at his stable. Hmm. In 1967, a Cook County Sheriff's deputy, Ralph Probst, died after being shot through his kitchen window while standing in his own home. Probst had been investigating horse rackets and had told family members he was on to something big. Jane was a suspect. Leads in the horse racket case were dropped following his death. <laughs> I know. In 1969, he, Taz Jane was uh, tried for the shooting of Frank Michelle Jr., which we heard of. He was, he was uh, the 1965 murder of Sherry Rude, which we heard of. The three young women at the beach, which we heard of. Also, the candy heiress Helen Brock disappeared while Silas Jane was serving time, but he is thought to have had some connection with her disappearance. Authorities were not able to get a break in the case until after Silas's death, as witness witnesses continued to be intimidated by him. <laughs> her body is still missing. Wow. George Jane's wife, Marion, who was a gifted equestrian and horse show judge had learned to fly in order to reach her clients around the country and get to horse shows. She actually went on, this is the happy part of the story, to become a world-class aviator. Within five years of learning to fly, she had received her ATP, or Airline Career Training Pilot Program, accreditation, only the 12th woman in the world to do so. Uh, she holds six world records in the field of aviation and is the only U.S. pilot and the only woman pilot to have completed two around-the-world airplane races. She <laughs> was inducted into the WAI Pioneer Hall of Fame and was listed as one of the top ten aviation heroes for the 20th century, along with the Wright brothers and Amelia Earhart. She succumbed to ovarian cancer surrounded by family in 2012. Wow. Yeah. What a story. Mm-hmm. So in 1967, we had said that George had previously been the owner of Tricolored Stable. It had actually, he, the reason he didn't have it anymore, it was a 120-stall barn with an indoor arena and training grounds, but the state of Illinois claimed the land for a fraction of its value under eminent d domain. So that's what happened to that barn. Hmm. Another barn that we mentioned, uh, One Day Farm, which is one that Silas had owned, which was in Elgin, Illinois, actually remains in the Jane family. Silas's great-nephew, Charlie Jane, was first alternate for the U.S. team in show jumping in the 2012 or London Olympics. Wow. So, the, yeah, the Jane family actually is still very prominent in the horse show industry. Wow. Yeah. But should they be? <laughs> well, I, I think you cannot judge one person by their relative, so, but, hmm. you know... They come from bad blood. <laughs> bad blood. <laughs> no, from from everything I've heard, I've, I tried to read about them, and they seem to be okay people. Oh, so. That's good. Yeah, that's good. Well, that was quite a tale, dear. Yes. Wow, that's one of those things where you're just like, why doesn't someone just shoot this person in the face? <laughs> I know, so terrible. But that's the problem. It's hard. It's hard for civilized people to fight uncivilized people because mm -hmm. our rules are different. Yeah. This doesn't occur to us. This is an afterthought. Why didn't someone just shoot him in the face? Mm -hmm. 
well, dear, guess what? What? We've had some uh, comments from people on the website. Oh, wow. And I thought I would take a minute to read them. Uh, because, well, I don't know. Because it's nice when people write. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to acknowledge it. So, uh, our first comment was from John H. This is from episode one. Okay. So we, have, we, have, we didn't do this in episode two. John H. wrote to say, he says, Ha! I, got, I get to make the first comment on episode one. Fantastic first episode, and what a strange story. Also, I love the theme music, Chris. <laughs> That's Chris Roberts? Yes. Yay, Chris. You wrote as well, dear. You said, yes, kudos to Chris for the fantastic tune. And then you also thanked John for his nice comment. I, I think I'll leave our, our, us out of these, though. Uh, Regis, a French listener, he wrote, he said, at last, it's there. Quick note, sauf et sain, more likely sans et sauf which translates in the expression safe and sound in English, but the direct translation is sound and safe. Excuse my internet and French pedantism. We'll listen this week. And he said, bye. Uh, he was right. I just confused it. I was too lazy to look back at what, what the, uh, oh, what the we said. Was. Yeah, because I would have had to listen to the show again. I was like, ah. And you had taken your notes away with you. Louise wrote to tell us, congrats on your inaugural episode. That was fascinating. I felt like I was overhearing a conversation at a racetrack clubhouse with all the horsey lingo and juicy gossip. I now have a new insult to hurl at my foes. Obligatory nasal breather. I was sorry to hear the clip-clopping of hooves that mark the end of the podcast. I'll catch you in two weeks. We hope you enjoyed that one, Louise. Chris wrote to say, Fab Show, Lisa, and Dave really enjoyed listening to episode one. A strange tale, compellingly told. Many thanks also to everyone who's commented on the music. I had a blast doing it and was pretty thrilled when the show appeared. Well, we thank you again, Chris, for your hard, your hard work. Now, what was happening? People also wrote about episode two, dear. What did they say? We only had two comments this time, though. One was from Chris. Well, that was sleazy, sordid, and salacious. So naturally, I loved it. Definitely a James and Kane vibe as the story unfolded. The cool ones should snap up the movie rights. And Louise said, Takeaway phrase of the episode, Designated Dozer. I wonder what it is about the horse racing world that appealed to these shady ladies. Was it the lifestyle in general? Or the access to a pool of high rollers and easy marks to fleece? This story would make one of those movies you don't know who to root for, except maybe the detective or the horse. Why do you think they were attracted to it? Do you think it is... The money. The money that is... It wouldn't matter what the guy did if he was no. involved in NASCAR racing. That yeah, would have been just the same. To, money. Yeah, but she I, did. She did ride and she rode, but I don't think she had had a background in riding. I think he was the one that that had ridden because his ad showed him riding. So I think she. It was a, something she picked up. Hmm. So everyone, if you'd like to leave a comment on the show, you can go to our website. It's called SneakyDragon.com, and there you'll find this episode, episode three, Horse Mysteries, episode three. And you could leave a comment about this show. Let us know what you thought about these terrible, terrible people and all their horrible actions. <laughs> and also, ask, along with me, why didn't they just shoot him in the face? <laughs> if you're a more private person, you can uh, send us an email. Our email address is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, which is something that Rich Lewin did. And Rich wrote to say, Hello, David and Lisa. My wife, Kathy, and I have truly enjoyed the first two episodes of Horse Mysteries. We both audibly gasped when Secretariat was mentioned in the first episode. That's a horse we know. <laughs> we lived in Sacramento, and when you started to tell the story of the second mystery, which happened near here, Kathy said, this really happened. I remember reading about this. And thank you for uh, backing us up on the, the veracity of these stories, Kathy. 
The vast knowledge of and love for horses from Lisa is apparent. It's true. Lisa loves horses. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see. I also liked how she sometimes would acknowledge David's quips. You put that in quotes. Thank you for doing that, Rich. <laughs> David's quips with a yeah, and just kept on with the story and reality. My wife does this as well when I try to be funny without adding anything useful to the actual conversation. Hey, I'm getting to be the Ian in this show. That's great. We are looking forward to keeping up with the series. Good job, and thank you. Regards, Rich Lou, and thank you, Rich, for rating and uh, being so honest. Maybe too honest. <laughs> so yes, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, everyone, and we would appreciate if you did that. And we'd also appreciate if you went to iTunes, or whatever it's called now. I don't think it's called iTunes anymore. It's called Apple Podcasts, I think. If you went to Apple Podcasts and left a uh, comment there, telling everyone how great the show is, and uh, complimenting Chris on his fabulous music. So there we go, everyone. Thank you for listening to our third inaugural episode of Horse Mysteries. Third inaugural? Yeah, this is our third inaugural episode. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time with another story. And this one's going to be called, dear? Uh, it will be called If Looks Could Kill. Oh, I love it. We'll see you then. Bye, everyone.